What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to The Crystal Knight Show, brought to you by Newsweek. This week, our guest is Brandy Collins-Dexter. She is the Associate Director of Research at Harvard Shorenstein Center and the author of the new book, Black Skinhead, Reflections in Blackness and Our Political Future. Welcome to the show, Brandy. Hi, Crystal. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And today's conversation is centered around what is the business behind Herschel Walker and Kanye West recently announced that he's running for president again in 2024. But before we get into the Walker conversation, Brandy, if you could share with listeners your hot take around this second presidential run by the infamous, the controversial Kanye West. I think I have a couple of takes. I think like many people, uh, there's a certain amount of skepticism with which I view this run. You know, he had a lot of allegations against him in the 2020 run that he was doing it to divert votes away from the Democratic Party, um, which I don't think he would have ever been super successful at. But certainly with Trump, you know, announcing his run, those questions emerge again. Uh, But I also do think that Kanye, uh, just as a figure, when you look at at him and how he talks and how he engages. I I think he actually has um, a goal of seeing himself beyond Trump. I almost think he thinks of himself as kind of like the more improved um, version of Trump in a lot of ways. So I I do think that he is running um, is somewhat more seriously than he was the first time around. So I'm I'm really curious to see how that how that'll pan out. Last time he couldn't even get on um, a critical number of ballots, but it, he's starting early enough now that that we'll see. Yeah, and this time he's actually you know he made headlines recently that he hired a campaign manager who's also controversial himself. Um, mm-hmm. But you know you say. He's running more. He's taking this run a little bit more serious than he did last time. But do voters take a Kanye West presidential run serious? Do people see him as a real viable candidate? I mean, (laughs) a lot of people see him as a rapper, as an entertainer, as a fashion artist. Um, Some people may say there are some challenges just happening with his personal life. So how do we translate that into a person who's actually going to mount a formidable campaign? Yeah, I mean, I think. I think it, it, data remains inconclusive. Uh, you know, last time, a lot of the people around him, um, as it came out, were people that were affiliated with uh, the Trump administration, which just added again to this idea that he was running more as a uh, sort of diversion than a serious candidate. This time, he seems to be compiling his own campaign. Uh, we see also this go around that the coalition of people that organized or fell in line around Trump in 2020 are not really there for him on the same level, uh, which opens up a door for Kanye. I would say in terms of like whether or not he's being taken as a serious candidate to voters, um, you know, I think at scale, no. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I do think he is intentionally, you know, a troll or somebody who throws sand in the gears, um, you know, a provocateur, if you call it. And I think as we saw with the rise of, of Trump in 2016, that there are a lot of people for whom, you know, chaos and, you know, upending the idea of traditional American politics does feel very appealing. And if you combine that with more suppressed voter turnout, the thing about it is that so much could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, he also comes from this line of these, uh, you know, cultural figures who have kind of remade themselves as politicians. This is true of Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, he wasn't particularly qualified, um, in my opinion, to be either gover- governor or of California or president of the United States for two terms. Right. Uh, but here we are, uh, you know, same thing with Trump. And so I think for a lot of people, especially in an internet environment, uh, I, I just think that information moves so fast um, and is so hard to consume at scale that there's a lot of unknown variables that we'll see become more clear over the next um, you know, year or so. Yeah, well, speaking of celebrities turned politicians, we have to turn our attention to the Georgia runoff between Herschel Walker, who was a famed football star and now sitting um, Congress or sitting U.S. Senator, excuse me, um, Raphael Warnock, who was a popular um, pastor in the Atlanta area. And he's now the senator for the state of Georgia. Um, But when you I want to really just make this tie between. Herschel Walker being a bit of a celebrity, if we will, although an athlete by way of being an athlete turned politician, someone who was recruited to run for this seat against Walker. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about this moment that we're in right now? We're seeing more and more celebrities stepping up to run for office or even teetering with the fact that they may throw their hat into the ring. Um, We've seen this in a number of different folks across the country. And why is this this moment, this celebrity turned, I want to get into politics moment, it's starting to happen over and over again and more rapidly than what we've seen um, in, in, in past years. Yeah, so I actually want to tackle this from a couple of angles. So before we get to the celebrity aspect, I want to talk about this um, in the context of uh, people of color and particularly black people running for Republican office. Sure. So um, this year in the run up to midterms, we saw a historic number of uh, candidates from communities of color and from black communities running as Republicans. A lot of them were not serious candidates. They didn't even make it out of primary. I think about 30, um, some made it to the November ballot. And of those, I think uh, six to eight ones. So we are looking at a historic number of black Republicans that will be coming into Congress next year. The bar is extremely low on that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also one of the most ideologically diverse black uh, Congresses that we'll see next year. And one of the things that that tells, that tells us a couple of things, one that the Republican party is understanding that it cannot sustain itself purely off of the white vote. And Mm -hmm. so they're attempting to make a lot of inroads with communities of color. And I think what you see is kind of turmoil within them. It's like, can we get away with this with candidates that are essentially regurgitating white nationalist talking points, which is a candidate like you saw, like Herschel Walker. Like if we put a black face on the same thing, will that fly? And for a lot of voters, it didn't. Or alternatively, uh, you know, do we make room in this party for a kind of like black Republican thought or that people that are coming with a more pro-black agenda, at least 
in their talking points. And we saw a few more of those candidates had better luck than others. So again, I think there's a couple of things happening. So we see the Republican Party really figuring out its relevancy and the soul of the party uh, in a lot of ways. And then on the other end, you see this rise of the internet soundbite economy that has made a lot of celebrities out of people who either maybe had a more minor form of celebrity, but are more well-known at this point for how they are online than maybe the thing that made them a celebrity and people that become celebrities based on what they say online. And because of the ways in which that's um, algorithmic, algorithmically um, inflated and moved and people get more into, uh, you know, following this kind of cult of personality online, I think a lot of that is what we're seeing translate offline and even with members of Congress or people in political office, a lot more and more it becomes about their social media persona mm -hmm. than what they're necessarily doing when they're going to cast votes in Congress. And so that's kind of the name of the game right now. And we see a lot of people throwing their hat in the ring. Um, but I still maintain uh, that without being able to have a strong on the ground organizing game, that's not necessarily going to, we're not going to see this like Congress that's just full of celebrities. I think you still have to do some organizing or some work at least right now. Right, right. Well, well, let's break down Herschel Walker. He's running for U.S. Senate in the state of Georgia. And the state of Georgia has been in the news, not only this election cycle, but in past election cycles because of how close the numbers have been for Democrats mm -hmm. versus Republicans. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams ran for governor four years ago. She was narrowly defeated this time. She saw a larger margin of defeat. Um, but how is it that we're even in a conversation talking about a runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock? Why are the numbers so close? Just from a data perspective, you're a researcher. Can you mm -hmm. break down for our listeners how a candidate like Walker could even get this close how how is how are we here right now? How yeah. how is this even possible? I mean, it's kind of wild in a lot of ways, and then unsurprising in some. I mean, I think the thing about Georgia is that it's only recently become a purple state, mm -hmm. and it still is that. It still is a purple state, uh, but for many years, it's been a very red state. So the idea that we could even be in a position of having two Democratic senators in Georgia didn't feel really realistic necessarily until uh, certain types of migration patterns. One of the ones that's been mentioned most is kind of like the reverse black migration. And so a lot of black people in the early part of the 20th century, uh, you know, moved north, moved west to get out of the south. Uh, we're seeing now a kind of return of people, even where I'm from Chicago, we've seen massive waves of people, uh, black families leaving Chicago, leaving Illinois and returning south, going to places like Georgia. And so that changing population has brought in more progressive voters, more black voters. Um, and that's part of uh, that combined with the organizing is part of what changed Georgia purple. So in a lot of ways, this toss up is a reflection of, um, you know, the fact that there's still a lot of Republicans in Georgia, when you break down the numbers, uh, you know, white people were the definitive uh, vote and, and voted overwhelmingly, uh, particularly white men, but also white women mm -hmm. for um, Herschel Walker. And so that that was kind of, you know, a deciding factor. I think it was 
actually overstated upfront how much we would see black men um, vote for Herschel Walker. I think that was the initial fear. Um, and there was a lot of conversation by different candidates that, you know, black men were going to vote at these really, you know, large uh, rates for Republican candidates. And what we saw across the board is that's not true. And I believe it's 85 percent of black men um, in, in Georgia voted for Reverend Warnock. So, I mean, you know, that that you know, was a little bit overstated. But I think also what we are seeing, again, is that cult of personality and that celebrity, the amount of money that Herschel Walker was able to bring in to run advertising from out-of-state money that was coming in. Mm -hmm. A lot of that was voices and conversations in a way that covered up for, you know, a lot of blatant weaknesses, if I may say. Yeah, and so you talked about, in in your last bit, you talked about this internet soundbite economy, And that seems to be something that Herschel Walker has captured. You know, he's on on stage during debates, waving an alleged fake police badge. He's he was recently at a at a a rally where he was dancing. He has been in interviews and has said just crazy things, wild things in interviews. Um, But he's capturing the media. He's capturing the audience of a quick soundbite, which is exactly what you what you've been, you know, discussing. And so Mm -hmm. how do you think he's being coached? How do you think how much of this do you think is just his personality? And are black folks being um, trying to think of the word that are, are, are we being bamboozled by his candidacy, thinking that he can actually go to Congress, go to the Senate and serve? Yeah, I mean, I think it's white people, frankly, that are being more bamboozled um, by his candidacy. And I think I think, again, this goes back to this idea of, uh, you know, particularly with the Republican Party. I think there's a number of different entry points into the Republican Party. One of it is big business and people that, you know, want to vote in these interests interest that preserve corporate power, um, keep, you know, taxes low, keep wide discrepancies, um, you know, amongst class and race. And for them, it's almost like vote red no matter who. Um, And so, like, if you put a Republican on the ticket, people are going to say, I don't like Herschel Walker. I think he sounds crazy, but he's a Republican, so I'm going to vote for him. So there's that type of voter. Then there's the other type of voter um, that I think has a lot of disillusionment with party politics Mm -hmm. and particularly you know, for people that have been traditional, traditional Democratic voters, feeling like they haven't necessarily gotten the things that they would like to see in the way of, uh, you know, economic empowerment or a number of other things from the Democratic Party, um, or from parties in general. So they're going to vote for whoever seems like it's is mixing it up or whoever they like, you know, and I think with Herschel Walker, being this, you know, athlete and presenting this very, like, you know, kind of strong, masculine, you know, uh, stereotypically masculine persona. That's something that appeals to a certain type of voter. But I think in general, one of the things that we're seeing is that um, these people that are not running on a pretense of an authentic Black political agenda are not going to move Black people as of right now, not at scale anyway. Um, Some Black people, I think, you know, something like 70% of younger Black voters say they want bold policy agendas and say they're open to third-party candidates. We see that um, three out of 10 younger Black voters 
are Republican, which is actually the largest share of uh, people across ethnicities of that age, like Black younger Black Republicans are kind of the fastest growing demographic. So you see there that there's interest in testing the waters of something new. But I think what the voter data showed us is that for Black people, at the end of the day, if you're not coming with something authentic or real, or people feel like you're actually not here to serve their interests at all, that is not going to get people to vote for you at mass. So again, it was, you know, white people that made push this to a runoff if it was just down to black voters it wouldn't have even been you know competitive remotely got it so understanding where we are the runoff election will take place on december the 6th what are your thoughts about how the outcome of this runoff will be yeah i mean i think it's it's actually going to be more of a uphill battle for walker you think what the data showed was that um Kemp at the top of the ticket helped him mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. a lot more than it should have. Um, it should have, <laughs> uh, you know, helped him a lot more. Let's just say that. And uh, and he's not going to have that cover anymore. Um, the question of turnout is always going to be a, a big issue. Of course. Uh, so can we get people to have the same interests, you know, one or two months later, three months later, than when everybody was talking about the election going mm-hmm. into November? Uh, what we saw with the runoff in uh, 2020, though, was that the local organizing infrastructure in Georgia was able to, like, turn out people for the runoff and get um, Reverend Warnock uh, elected to Senate in the first place. And so I think that'll still be there. Um, but, you know, the thing about it too, is that a lot of this is subject to the whims and where we are as a society and what are the kind of big issues. And I think if people feel like they're losing economically, if people feel like all of the, they see around them are, uh, you know, disillusionment and failures, and that's able to get pinned on the democratic party, um, that unfortunately will hurt uh, Reverend Warnock, that might turn people out off from voting. It might, you know, get people to switch parties and maybe, you know, get people to do write-ins. Uh, so we'll see, I guess I'd say, but I, I feel cautiously optimistic mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, that that Reverend Warnock will, will pull it out. Yeah, I feel optimistic about it. I think when we think back, like you said, to his first, you know, the first special election that was in January of 2021, you know, that the gap between November and January was was wide. But now Georgia has closed that gap, making this special election literally basically a month after the after the general. So I think mm-hmm. that that will one work in his favor, meaning, you know, Raphael Warnock. I also think, you know, with Brian Kemp being off of the ballot, we shouldn't see these large droves of Republicans turning out for Herschel Walker. And I think the third thing is with the midterm election, the general being over, we now have a greater look at who Herschel Walker, who, who Herschel Walker is. We can look back at his interviews. We can look back at his policy stances and positions and really see, is this the candidate that we want for our state of Georgia. If I'm a Georgia voter, I'm not a Georgia voter, but if I were, this would give me time to really digest what just happened in the midterm elections. And while it's still on my mind, only a little bit over a month later, I'm able to go back into the polls, maybe more informed than I did before. And hopefully that will lead um, Raphael Warnock to another victory to secure the full term um, of, of his Senate seat. 
Yeah. I mean, he, let's be honest. He's a Senate, you know, uh, Herschel Walker was an unserious candidate. Uh, just from jump, he was unserious as Absolutely. a candidate, and I, I think that's one of the things that it's like. You know, I, I interviewed a lot of Black Republicans uh, for my book. I, I vote. Uh, you know, I interviewed people, Black people of all political identities from the ages of 18 to 108 and a number of them were black republicans mm -hmm. and many of them were very serious about moving a black political agenda and we could talk about you know whether or not i ideologically agreed with that but they had a vision mm -hmm. for black people through the republican party that was not that was not where walker was coming from he was about the theatrics he was about again regurgitating essentially like white nationalist talking points. It was almost like Ron Burgundy from the Anchorman, whatever you put on the teleprompter, he might read. I, it, it, but because he was such an unserious candidate, it is hard to take him seriously in this runoff. But I will say this, one of the things in 2016 that most hurt the Democratic Party was this belief that the race was already won. Yep. And so a lot of people didn't necessarily think about voting because they thought it was going to be a landslide. And it turned out, uh, you know, not to be that way. So so I think the big thing, again, is like turnout and not, and not feeling so certain about mm -hmm. the unseriousness of Walker that people don't turn out. Because one thing about it, people will elect an unserious candidate. We've already seen that much. Absolutely. And ride with them, much like what they're doing, yeah. even with Walker, riding with his candidacy, understanding and knowing he is not the best candidate that the party, the Republican Party, could have put forward. But you've been talking about black folks either leaving the Democratic Party and joining Republicans altogether and or looking for a third party, maybe because there's some disenchantment within the democratic ranks about how the party views um, black, the black vote and if the party actually takes the black vote for granted. So based upon your research or studies, what are you seeing as far as the trends on why people beyond just, you know, I feel taken advantage of what are other reasons that you think black folks are now really giving the Republican party a more serious look um, with, you know, party identification beyond, you know, the history of black people being identified with the, with the Republican Party? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so I think there's a few things playing out. Uh, so one and, and one of the things that I talk pretty extensively about in the book um, is the loss of space and place mm. for uh, local organizing. And, and so one of the, I think, aha moments for me, and uh, just to give folks a little more context. So it's a collection of essays that span um, the personal and political. And it kind of, it, funnily enough, started from this question of like, what's going on with Kanye West? And this was back in 2019. And um, it, ultimately, it's about the loss of community and and then what comes from that. And and that is very clear to look at with Black people in America because we have for decades built this sense of linked fate to one another. And a lot of that came through Black ownership of media. A lot of that came through Black business. A lot of that came from people of mixed economic status, Black people living together, organizing together, and then wealthier Black people because of that, feeling a certain responsibility to vote um, in a way that uplifts the entire 
uh, you know, race or, or community and feeling like the Democratic Party could offer that at a certain point in time when the Republicans can't. So one of the things that we've seen is the mass loss of black space. I think up to 60% of black wealth was lost in 2008. A number of black businesses shut down during the COVID recession in 2020. So even some of the organizing structures that benefited Obama in the run up to the 2008 election are not there anymore. And mm-hmm. so people are working more in isolation. Mm-hmm. And so that is manifesting in certain ways. Um, for younger people that are going into like, you know, three generations of student loan debt or, you know, the the long tail of mass incarceration from, you know, the 90s, they're not seeing necessarily that they feel like a democratic party politic has benefited people. Um, a lot of what I also heard in interviews is uh, people really looking at local politics and being in, you know, urban areas and and thinking about their aldermen and seeing their community fall into decline over the last couple of decades and really pinning that on their aldermen. Now we could we could tease out how much of that is the alderman? I would say some of it is. How much of it is the mayor? Some of it is. How much of it is that a lot of like blue mayors or aldermen tend to be in red, you know, governor states? And I say this as someone that lives in Maryland and has seen Governor Hogan do a lot to um, harm, you know, Baltimore City where I live, and then having that be blamed on local people. So there's there's a lot of things at play, but I think ultimately what. I found with people that were veering more Republican is that it was like the loss of black wealth and resources and a more individualized approach to how to rebuild that, that was driving people towards looking at that. And so I, I, I close by saying this, I think one of the big factors going into the midterms was a lot of the economic policies that were passed by the Democratic Party. I think the Inflation Reduction Act and talking about that and a number of different things like that. When you, when you start speaking in that kind of like language of local economics, I think that that wins with people. And I really do think that was the X factor in turning people, people out at the midterms. Got it. Okay. That was a lot. That was a lot to digest. No, 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 (laughs) that, that you just gave our listeners, but I, I appreciate that. So, just to kind of wrap up what we've what we've been discussing, you know, we've, we've talked about Kanye, we've talked about Herschel Walker, we've talked about really this this black flight, if you will, from the Democratic Party, really considering the Republican alternative or third party alternatives. We know that there is not a third party, a true third party in this country mm-hmm. that exists. But do you have any research or are you aware in any of their, your conversations with with black folks about the viability of a third party and if were if one were to be created um how many people we would see leave both parties to form this new third option for democracy in this country yeah i mean i think that's a really interesting question so i want to take a step back and say even though um there is this rising group of younger uh Black Republicans. And when I say younger, I'm generally talking under 30, but I would say that in, even under 25, but to a certain extent, this is a pattern that's happening with like under 45. But more younger Black people are actually drawn to socialism. And Ooh. so there's there's a stronger, uh, you know, movement towards 
leftism um, and third party that's to the left of the Democratic Party than it is to the right of the okay. Republican, Republican Party. So I do want to kind of put that out there. Um, I think, but what was interesting in talking to a lot of the Black Republicans that I cover in the book is that there was this back and forth between people around whether or not there should be like an indiv- a, a third party specifically for Black interest um, or people should be Republican. And, and I think one of the back and forths and attentions, and I actually heard this from leftists too, is that the bar is so high for creating a viable third party, as you said, that for Black Republicans, the local Black Republican Party was essentially an empty vessel because so many Democrats run unopposed in local politics. So it was like we could hijack the Republican Party from the grassroots up and remake it in our own vision. Mm. Um, Democrats to the left or people to the left of the Democratic Party don't necessarily have those viable vehicles um, in the same way. It's not like the Democratic Party is an empty vessel on the local level. There's a lot of places where like the Green Party um, can't get on the ticket. We've seen success with the working family parties in some places. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's still this idea of what is actually viable or feasible for people. But I do think that um, as people become, I think one thing that I will say about younger voters that the data supports and that anecdotal supports is that they don't necessarily feel committed to, well, this is the party structure that we have to work with. So we have to work within the system. I think people are finding a number of other ways to be political and activate their politics outside of a de facto two-party system. And so where we are like 25 years from now, I think could be really interesting. Wow, that's um, that's interesting. And, and thank you for sharing those those data points and just really that outlook about how the country could change politically and as specifically with within the black community as we continue to evolve in thought, as we continue to evolve in ideology, how, um, you know, we may see less numbers um, turn out for a particular party and really begin to have this infusion of creating our own and or breaking off pieces and bits of, of both parties to really formulate what works for a particular black demographic, because we know not every black person thinks the same and and wants to identify with the same um, Mm -hmm. political ideology. But I like that, you know, we always say young people are our future. Um, And, you know, even based upon the numbers that you've been sharing, you know, black folks under the ages of 25, which is really at the, at the collegiate level. That's what I'm also hearing you say is that mm-hmm. people are starting to organize even there, maybe even mm-hmm. later in high school as they become, you know, of age to vote, thinking about what does politics look like for me? And I don't have to, you know, ascribe to what my parents, you know, what they believe or think or what I've been taught. I can figure it out and create something on my own. So I really appreciate you having this conversation. And I wanted to just leave you with any, you know, culminating thoughts as we wrap up this conversation around, you know, black identifiers and how people are identifying not only with this, you know, runoff race in Georgia between Walker and Warnock, but just with the Democratic versus Republican versus, you know, independent party in general, where we're we're headed into the future. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say this. I think one of the things that I found interesting was going into the midterms. I feel like younger voters were written off 
black male voters were written off in a number of different ways. Um, there were, you know, charges of like, you know, misinformation, capturing people. And what we saw is that there was actually a really high turnout with younger voters and, and with black men in, in Georgia. And one of the things that we've seen is that people are self-organizing around these activating issues, uh, whether it's critical race theory that's bred a whole bunch of younger people and seeing like books get banned yeah. that have been classics like Maya Angelou and others has been an, an organizing force, you know, abortion, student debt. Um, you know, there's a number of different things that are really like activating people and, and pushing pe younger people and millennials are about to be the largest voting block and I right. believe two elections. And so we're, I think that we're going to see some interesting shifts and it'd be really important for the Democratic Party to pay attention to what that means in terms of what what those voters are looking for and expecting. Well, I think the last thing that you just said, the Democratic Party paying attention. So Democratic Party, we're looking at you. Are you listening? <laughs> are you listening to us? Are you listening to millennials? Are you listening to people who are saying we don't identify with what you've been giving us? And I talk about messaging all the time, just as a Democratic strategist and someone who's worked in Democratic politics, that, you know, the way that we're messaged to as black people, um, you know, it's it's we're, we're missing the mark. I think the party is missing the mark when they message to us. We get one singular message instead of a diversified message or a nuanced message based upon where we're settled, you know, across the country. And that is something that is continuing to hurt us election after election. So I want to just thank you for taking the time to be here today to share with us again. You've been listening to the Crystal Knight Show brought to you by Newsweek. And we have just had an awesome conversation with Brandy Collins Dexter. So, Brandy, thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you'll come back. We'd love to have yeah. you back. Um, maybe we can do a postmortem on what happened um, with this Georgia runoff and, and just other things as it relates to black culture, um, because there is always there will always be things in the news because we drive the culture. Mm -hmm. So remember that. Um, and so I just want to you know thank you again for being with us today and this week. And we look forward to having you join us again soon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Crystal. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. The best way you can support us is to give your five-star review on Apple iTunes and be sure to check out our diverse lineup of over 12 different podcasts and radio programs at newsweek.com forward slash podcast. I'm Crystal Knight. Thank you for listening. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to The Crystal Knight Show.